waiting for that live signal. Good morning. It's good to see you all. What a blessing to gather in Christ's name and to rejoice in the hope we have in Jesus. And uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 22. As you're turning there, just a couple of announcements. We do have a sign-up sheet out in the foyer. Trudy's asked me to let you know to peruse that, see if there's any area you'd like to volunteer because um, the ministries we can offer are because of you helping do them. So that's really a, a blessing to see people step up. So feel free to check those out and also um, send your requests to Trudy and she can go through that. Also, as Ian said, still four square meters. We are social distancing. So uh, tea and coffee will be brought to you. So hopefully we'll be able to enjoy fellowship. Just find a seat. You're free to move around, of course, but um, just keep that in mind as we worship and fellowship. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to be our Savior and for giving us such uh, bountiful promises through Him. Thank you for your word that's truth and for your spirit who fills us. And we pray, Lord, that we would be attentive to your voice today. We would hear your word and we'd take it to heart and that we'd walk in light of your truth. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to gather for allowing us to meet in person and for those joining us online. We pray your blessings would be uh, abundant, that we would recognize how good you've been, how you have provided, how you, we have lacked nothing because you have been so faithful to us. We praise and honor you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas is a great reminder of what God has done in sending Jesus, the promised Messiah, born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, and we see such joy expressed by the angels, the shepherds, the wise men, and it's really contrasted with what we see towards the end of Christ's life, where there was betrayal and arrest and the brutality that he faced on the cross. It's like the greatest gift of the world that God, that we could ever receive, was rejected. It's like you know, you have that, the gift that you need to return. It's like that's what people did with Jesus. God sent Jesus to be the greatest gift ever, to provide salvation and forgiveness, and man said, no, don't need him, don't want him. And so it's very sobering to think about that God would send a Savior to sinners. God wants to redeem and reconcile sinners to himself as sons, and yet man just said, no, we won't have anything to do with him, away with him. And uh, what's so great about Jesus is that he extended grace even to those who uh, tortured him, to those who abused him. And we enjoy this season of grace to today. And it's ironic that we who have received the grace, we don't always walk in the grace of God. We don't receive the grace. We think we need to be humiliated before we can really earn favor with God as if it's to be earned. But God has forgiven us by his grace we couldn't earn his favor, and he's extended it to us, and that's for us to receive the forgiveness and to walk in to extend it to others. Our failure that results in repentance, it opens our hearts to receive a new measure of grace. And there can be times in our life where we don't feel like we need grace because we're good enough. Like grace, it's a gift God gives us, and we're like, I don't need that because I measure up right? I'm, I'm of a higher quality than those others who would deny Jesus or forget about him during Christmas time. Or, um, it's the sick who needs a doctor and seeks a doctor. It's the sinner 
who clings to Jesus because he needs forgiveness, because he needs a Savior. And praise the Lord for his message to us today. In Luke 22, starting verse 54, Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. During the previous passage, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus and his disciples were accosted by an armed mob who arrested Jesus, led by Judas, who betrayed him with a kiss. And Peter, he lashed out with a sword. He cut off Malchus' right ear, the high priest's servant. Jesus miraculously healed him. And um, Mark 14, 50, it says, Then all forsook him and fled. So all of the disciples who pledged their loyalty to Christ, they scattered. They ran from him when he was arrested. And John 18, 13, it says Jesus was brought first to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that time. Now, the Luke account that we'll be reading today, that is the focus uh, at Caiaphas's house, who was the high priest at that time. All the disciples fled, but Peter, it said, followed at a distance. He had been vocal that he, regardless what anyone else did, he was going to be faithful. He wasn't going to run. He wasn't going to be stumbled or scatter. And if you could turn, please, to Matthew 26, we'll read to what Jesus said prior to his arrest. So Matthew 26, starting in verse 31. And Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen in fulfillment of Scripture. But Peter, he opposes that. He's like, no way. That's not going to happen. Matthew 26, 31, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Jesus tells Peter, the scripture must be fulfilled. This is what's going to happen. And he says, not me. Everybody else may stumble and fall, but I won't deny you. I will die before I deny you or I stumble. Isn't it ironic that Jesus said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. And then you read what Peter said, I will never be made to stumble. I will never deny you. He's like, I will, I will. And we'll see that his will was not strong enough to keep from doing what God said he would do. And Peter wasn't the only one. Everyone agreed, we'll die before we'll deny you or flee from you. And this scene in Gethsemane, it shows the faithfulness of God to his word and the fickleness of man. Peter, he follows Jesus from afar. He ventured into the courtyard of Caiaphas. He joined himself with others that built a fire, and it's like he was warming himself and seeking to blend in. And we're not really told precisely his motive why. Maybe he had initially fled and, and justified himself, like, well, I didn't really flee because I'm still following him. I'm keeping tabs on him. Um, maybe it was curiosity, what was happening to Jesus, or maybe he was even trying to concoct a plan, like how can we break him out of here? Um, how can we uh, free Jesus from this problem? He was likely there because he wanted to help, but I can't note it, help but notice the correlation between following Jesus from afar, 
coldness, and darkness. It's like following Jesus from afar, it benefits little. It really doesn't benefit you at all to follow from a distance. Just like a sheep that's separated from the shepherd. What good is that to the sheep when there's wolves around? Luke twenty-two fifty-six. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Servant girl looks at Peter and is like, I think I recognize this guy. He was a follower of Jesus. And it says, but he denied him. See that? He denied Jesus, saying, woman, I do not know him. Not long before someone else says, you are of them. No, definitely not. An hour passed, and based upon his Galilean accent, I mean, he's talking a lot for someone who's hoping to blend in. They said, you're a Galilean. We can tell by your voice. You are one of them. And he says, man, I don't know him. Mark 14, 71, it puts it this way. It, it, it shows the vehemence of his denial. It says, then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So he's cursing. He's swearing and saying, I don't know him. He was very quick to do three times the thing that he said, I will die before I do that thing. Can you identify with that, with Peter? You've done the thing again and again that you promised God or someone else, I'm never going to do that. And then you did it. You found yourself doing it. It's like a pig that returns to the mire after being washed, right? We too, we have returned to our sin, to wallow in it. And maybe there's something that we meant to do that was good and we left it undone. And we might scoff. We might look at Peter and go, why didn't he stand up for Jesus? How was that so hard? Or why did he run? Why did he deny him? Peter was convinced. He says, I will not be scattered. I will not stumble. I will not deny Jesus. But it didn't stop him from doing it. Knowing what's right does not empower us to do what's right. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God in itself does not mean that we'll speak up, that we love him or obey him. And we can easily deny Jesus in a word or through deeds because our flesh is easily swayed in the moment by how we feel. No amount of mental preparation or training can prepare us for a spiritual battle, right? This is a spiritual battle that he's facing. It's not just a battle against the flesh. There, are, there, there was a lot going on he was totally unprepared for because he tried to do it in his own strength. Until we agree with God's damning assessment of our folly and our weakness, we will not see our need for God's strength, and we won't even perceive our failure before it's over. And you look back and go, what happened? Like, you didn't, has that happened to you where you didn't even realize you had slipped into that thought pattern or that sin until it was over, and then you feel guilty, and then it's like a cycle that just continues. Luke 22, verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter has just finished cursing, saying, I don't know him, I don't know him, and looks over. And Jesus, at that moment, rooster crowing, 
sees him, and they just, their eyes meet. And Peter remembered. And it wasn't a look of disappointment. Jesus wasn't surprised because he told Peter what he was going to do, right? He predicted it. He said, you're going to deny me three times. So it's not like, I can't believe you did that, Peter. Or it wasn't a smug, like, wink, I told you so. <laughs> like, kind of mocking him or angry, like, oh, wait till I get my hands on you, you know. I'm going to teach you a lesson. No, none of that. It was a look that reminded Peter of what Jesus had said. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. It was a look of love. It was a look that made Peter think, how could I do this when there's someone that loves me like that? When there's someone who's been faithful to me and I've denied him. And he was just crushed at that moment with his guilt. And he couldn't keep up the act of being a strong, bold disciple anymore. He's following from afar off. He just denied Jesus three times and he was broken for his sin. And he wept. This, this was wailing, howling. He's just, and everyone's sitting around the fire going like, what happened to that guy? But he knew what had happened. He had denied Christ. It's good for us to consider, have we also, like Peter, been broken for our sin? Sin's always lamentable. But how profitable it is when godly sorrow leads to repentance. All sorrow does not lead to repentance. There's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Uh, Paul, he had written a letter to the church in Corinth for, for their sin. That was part of it, was to deal with the, the divisions within the church and their abuse of spiritual gifts and the pride and the haughtiness that was there. Though they were operating in spiritual gifts and uh, were faithful to preach the word, he rebuked them with this letter, and it didn't destroy them, it restored them. It was constructive. It was something that made them better at following Christ and caused them to put away the sin and to start doing what pleased God. And this is what Paul observed in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. We're content if someone's just sorry, right? Just admit you're sorry. Tell me you're sorry and say it like you mean it, and I'll be okay. I can get over that. But God, he's not just wanting us to be sorry. He wants godly sorrow that produces repentance, a change of heart, that owns what we did and says, there's no excuse for it, and I am totally to blame. The Bible records that Judas felt guilty after he betrayed Christ and saw that he was condemned to death. He cast the 30 pieces of silver at the Jewish ruler's feet, and he went out and hung himself. That was sorrow, but it wasn't godly sorrow. It was sorrow for self. It was guilt without repentance. Jesus told Peter, I'm going to pray for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. And that's what he did. His faith didn't fail. He repented of his sin, and God restored him. It's like Peter's denial of Christ, it didn't damage his faith in Jesus, but it destroyed the faith that he had in himself. And we can have a, a degree of faith in ourselves that I'm going to do the right thing. They may do the wrong thing, but I'm going to do what's right. I will, I will. We need to realize that 
when we fail. Feeling sorry, being guilty, that doesn't solve anything. It's repentance that helps us to return to Christ and then be the one he uses to strengthen others in their faith. Isn't that a grace, right? That, that God would choose to use that person to be a benefit to others for Christ. During a visit to Israel, I went to the Church of St. Peter in Gilakantu, which in Latin means cock crow. And it's a very odd church because roosters are a really big part of the decor. We've just never seen this in a church before. Could you put up a couple of those pictures? So it's a church. If you see up here, it's very faint, but you can see there is a rooster on top of the steeple there, on top of the crucifix. All right, next one. This is built on the, the ruins of a Byzantine basilica that's believed to be Caiaphas's house. Like Caiaphas lived in this area outside the old city. And uh, hard to see, but look right here. Rooster. Right? It's like wherever you look in this building, there's like a rooster here, there's a rooster there. There's Peter like, oh no, I betrayed Christ. You know, I've, uh, there you go, in the courtyard. You can see the Temple Mount in the background and in this scene. Sorry about the lighting, but there is another artwork with a rooster on top. Peter denying Christ. It's like, I wonder how Peter would feel if he went and visited this church. Right? Everywhere you look, there's like a rooster there, rooster there, rooster everywhere. And uh, like, why did this church push pause about my denial? Do we have to keep bringing this up? And there's something funny about roosters. They don't just crow once in the morning. They crow again and again and again every day, pretty much throughout the day. And he's living in a rural society. There are chickens and roosters everywhere. And he would never be far from a potential reminder of his denial of Jesus. That bad feeling. There would be a lot of opportunities for that to come back and just say, oh, how could I do that? How could I deny Christ? You know, we too can have triggers and things that remind us of our failure. And the fact that we're still tempted about something that we, we feel we should have overcome and just not even been a, a temptation for us anymore, but it still tempts us. There's still a battle to be waged against it, and sometimes we fail and we feel guilty about that. Satan is not shy to accuse us, to remind us to shoot those arrows and try to hit our hearts, to cause doubt to enter into our minds. And we can beat ourselves up. We can punish ourselves in a vain attempt to teach ourselves a lesson we cannot learn. We can't learn it. We can't help ourselves. And it's not that we need to forgive ourselves. We need to learn to confess our sin to God, to repent to receive the forgiveness he offers us by his grace. Repentance is not just avoiding sin in the future, but choosing to do what's right instead. Choosing to obey God. Continuing in Luke 22, verse 63. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. 
And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Jesus is arrested. He was mocked. He was beaten. It was a common practice to taunt and to torment prisoners, especially those marked for death. Pride gets a delight in exalting self over others. It results in abuse of authority. And it's like the worst sinful characteristics of humanity was on display as Jesus Christ is being bullied and mocked and beaten, blasphemed. And they made a game of his suffering, right? They're covering his face and punching. Well, who punched you? Who pulled out your beard? And see, Jesus, they didn't think he knew, but Jesus did know. He could have said, well, you punched me first in my right eye. You're the one who opened my lower lip, and you're the guy who ripped that part out of my beard. I, I know who did it. I knew you were going to do it before you did it. And he allowed it to happen because it was keeping with God's word, where he did not resist the evil because he had came as a sacrifice for sinners. He allowed himself to suffer such brutal, disgusting abuse and humiliation because he came to save them. He came to save them and other sinners so they could receive the grace of God and be forgiven. Their souls could be redeemed. And that abuse, it continued throughout the night. The next morning, he's asked before the council. And it was illegal to be arrested during the night. They held him overnight illegally. But then, to, make sh- to keep up appearances and make sure it had all been done above board, they have this council, the Sanhedrin, and they inquire, are you the Christ? If you are, just tell us. The Sanhedrin was like our Supreme Court. It was comprised of Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and priests. And they made decisions concerning religious and political matters with restrictions, though. They weren't allowed to enforce, weren't allowed by the Romans to enforce capital punishment. But uh, they had a backup plan for that. So Jesus, he's bruised, he's battered, and they say, if you're the Christ, tell us. It wasn't because they wanted to really know. They knew that he had been claiming that, and they wanted an opportunity to accuse him. And Jesus knew that his affirming or not wouldn't convince them. It wouldn't change their minds. They wouldn't let him go. If he asked them questions, they would dodge it and evade the implications. Their minds were already made up. Jesus is a false prophet. He's a deceiver. He's an unlearned imposter from Nazareth who had fame and a following that they were envious of. The sheep would hear Jesus' voice, but the goats, they would remain independent. They would remain distant from him. And then he says, hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. He's applying the Son of Man to himself and speaking about what he would do in the future. Uh, In Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So he's saying, I will have the authority. I have the authority. And all my enemies will be judged. I don't know if they really understood what he was saying. But he allowed them to have their way now, knowing a day was coming when he would be exalted, he would be ruling as judge, and they would ultimately be his subjects and suffer torment for their sin, apart from repentance and salvation through faith in him. Could you please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 20. I think it's really neat to read what Peter later wrote. 
using Jesus as an example for us to follow. He was an eyewitness of much of this. And he experienced it as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously." who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus had done no wrong, but he was beaten for blasphemy. They were blaspheming him, and yet he took it patiently. He didn't threaten them with judgment. He merely told them what's the reality of what they were facing apart from him. He, it says he committed himself to his father who judges righteously. Uh, he's not trying to manipulate them. He didn't try to shift things around. It's like he was already committed to God and whatever the sovereign father had chosen for him. And knowing that God's sovereign is so comforting when we realize that he's good, he's gracious, he's compassionate, He's a provider. He's a savior, right? Like knowing that God's sovereign and above all, and he's good, it changes everything. That he's going to protect us. He's going to help us. God's not looking for opportunities or excuses to destroy us. He is hoping, he is desirous that we would believe in him so he could save us, so he could forgive us and heal us. So he could provide eternal life. God doesn't need to create an excuse, right? It wouldn't be an excuse if we were sent to hell for our sin. We deserve that. But he sent Jesus to be our savior so we could know him, so we could be with him forever. He was reviled. He did not revile in return because he committed himself to God's care. Back to Luke 22, verse 70. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Jesus agreed with the statement they believed was blasphemy, that he would claim to be the Son of God. According to their counsel, like, we have enough. We've got all we need on him to condemn him because he has claimed to be the Son of God. And later, Pontius Pilate, he would be addressed in John 19, 7. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Earlier in the gospel, it's spelled out what's exactly meant by by the term son of God. Some have said that because he's a son, he's lesser than God, which is false. Jesus was not created. He is the creator. He is the Word who became flesh, God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And if you look, just turn there, John 5, verse 17. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. They were accusing Jesus of blasphemy, but actually they were the blasphemers 
because he's the only begotten Son of God. John 5, verse 17, says, But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. That is very important. He made himself equal with God. That's why they wanted to kill him. That's what son of God means. It means equal with God. Now, this only begotten there, that's monogenes. That means one and only unique. He's the only one. He is the word. He existed before his birth by the Virgin Mary and for through him, all things were created in heaven and earth. We see that in John chapter 1. I, I think it's amazing to consider. There was hope for these proud, arrogant, blasphemous Pharisees, these self-righteous murderers who blaspheme God to his face. There was hope for them. There was forgiveness for them. There was grace being offered to them. There was forgiveness and cleansing through Jesus who healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He cleansed lepers. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. The one with the bloodied face and the bloodshot eyes was going to Calvary to lay down his life for those sinners and for us, the sins of the world. For Judas, who betrayed Jesus, for Peter, who denied Jesus, there was hope of forgiveness and a new start through faith in him if they would repent. Turn, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. See what Peter had to say after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Just focus on that word, begotten. It's a different word in the Greek. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter and all who trust in Christ are begotten again. This is anageneo, which means to give new birth, to be born again, used in the sense of spiritual rebirth. When you read this, do you get any hint of Peter feeling really guilty that he denied Jesus? Is there any hint whatsoever that he had failed at some point terribly by denying three times the Son of God? No. There's, I don't sense any burdening of guilt here. I, I sense joy and thanksgiving, and gladness, and the mercy of God, and the grace of God, and someone who knows he's kept by the power of God, that he's not able to keep himself. He's not able to say, I will do the right thing and do it. He realizes he can't. It's only through God that he could be saved and forgiven and have hope. He had been born again by faith in Jesus. He had been kept by Jesus, and he's like, praise God, blessed be God according to his abundant mercy. We have an incorruptible inheritance. We are kept by the power of God. His faith is not in himself to never stumble, 
but in the righteous God who cleansed and kept him. That sound of the crowing rooster, it ceased to be a reminder of Peter's failure. I think it could be turned to a testimony of God's faithfulness and forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? That the same rooster could crow and you could be burdened with guilt forever. Every time, bummed out. Oh man, why did I do that? Instead, it could be a testimony of God's forgiveness. God has forgiven me. God has cleansed me. God is keeping me. There is a hope I have now through Jesus. We're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. How about you? Do you spend more time lamenting your past failures or rejoicing in the forgiveness offered by Christ through faith in Him? I love that after Jesus rose from the dead, He he singled Peter out. Remember, He had singled Peter out to say, you're going to deny me three times, Peter. But in Mark 16, 7, the angel said, the women that were uh, seeking to anoint the body of Jesus, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So he takes time mercifully, graciously to single him out and say, tell Peter, not don't tell Peter, he's a denier, but no, tell him. So he'll be there. It wasn't to humiliate him. It wasn't to sledge him, it was to encourage him to rejoice in the acceptance and love of God. We don't earn forgiveness. We don't earn a good standing by our humiliation. Jesus was humiliated for us. Let's be done once and for all with religion that puts greater value on our works than for God and what God has done for us. We can't earn God's grace by anything we do. It's received by grace through faith in Jesus. God spoke to Zerubbabel in Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. The context is he had gone back after the captivity in Babylon to rebuild the temple. And they were committed and they worked hard. And, but there were a lot of obstacles that had been impossible to overcome by all the might and all the power they possessed. It, but he said, but by my spirit... By my Holy Spirit, this temple is going to be built. And you are born again by the Holy Spirit. Now you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. So it's not by trying to be better. It's not by beating yourself up or reminding yourself of your failures. It's rejoicing in Christ and the forgiveness he gives you by his grace that we receive through faith. So there can be these insurmountable obstacles. You can, I can't help myself but sin. That is a good place to be if you have godly sorrow that leads to repentance, then you can rejoice in his salvation, knowing you are kept by him. Last verse. Please turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 8, and receive this encouragement from the Lord. Peter went from following Jesus afar off, cursing as he denied Jesus, cursing as he, he, he did the very thing he promised he would never do, to a man who strengthened the brethren, who boldly proclaimed Jesus as Lord to the very people who crucified him. On his way to the temple at the hour of prayer, Peter and John and others, they saw a lame man who was begging, and Peter miraculously healed him through the power of God, through the name of Jesus Christ. And he was promptly arrested by the Jewish rulers. 
being filled with the Holy Spirit is the key. It's the secret of Peter's boldness and wisdom. So he's no longer denying Jesus, he's proclaiming him. And you may say, oh, I've tried to proclaim Jesus, but obstacles. You know, those obstacles aren't any bigger than trying to build the temple where you have all those adversaries and so little resources. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. God will do it. And we see it right here. Acts 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Isn't it awesome what God does to a person who's born again and filled with the Holy Spirit? When we repent and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit, He lives inside of us and we can trust Him to come upon us and empower us to do God's will, that He will comfort us and bring to mind everything we know in that hour to proclaim and honor Christ. In the courtyard by the fire, Peter's Galilean accent confirmed that he was a follower of Christ, but here they're not listening to his accent. They're hearing what he's saying. And such wisdom, such boldness that they could not even argue with. That is the power of God. He's an unlearned, he's an untrained man, but he's been with Jesus. Before they had been accusing him, you've been with him. I don't know him. And then just by the words coming out of his mouth, speaking like Jesus, they're like, he's been with Jesus. His words proclaimed it because Jesus, the Holy Spirit, was living in him. There was a time where Peter didn't think he needed the Holy Spirit because he wasn't going to stumble. He wasn't going to be scattered. He wasn't going to deny Jesus. But that failure opened his heart and his mind with godly sorrow that led to repentance and changed him. He was born again, begotten again. Kept by God, Peter spoke truth boldly. And may we be filled with the Holy Spirit to do the same, trusting in him. If we know how to give good gifts to our children, won't the the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? God won't just strengthen you, but He'll use you to strengthen others by His grace. Let's rejoice in our Savior. Father, thank You for Your goodness to us all, that we are deniers, we are betrayers, we are blasphemers, we are liars, Lord, but You have sent Jesus to be our Savior. And may we confess, Lord, our sin. May we be broken by it, realizing that we need you. We need to be begotten again. We must be born again. We must trust you and follow you. And it's not by works of righteousness what we have done, but by your mercy you have saved us, and it's by your grace you keep us. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for this example of how you change us, that it's not by might nor by power, but by your spirit. I pray that we would 
receive this word close to our hearts. We would walk in it. That we would be proclaimers of your truth, not proclaimers of what we will do. Thank you, Lord, that you will do all things, that there is nothing hidden from you, and that you have spoken, and your word is true. We come to you, Lord, as poor beggars, as lost sheep, following at a distance. We return to you, Lord, so that we may be used by you to strengthen the brethren, not because we're worthy, but because you are good and gracious. In Jesus' name, amen.